Amen. So for our scripture reading this morning, it's going to be found in Matthew chapter 7. So if you're going to open up to Matthew 7, it'll be page 812 uh, in the hardback uh, black Bibles uh, around you. Um, also, if you're new and if you don't have um, a Bible that is your own, feel free to take that hardback uh, black Bible um, just as our gift to you today um, if you don't have one. So again, uh, Matthew chapter 7, uh, page 812 in the black Bible. We'll be starting in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, uh, who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And when the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, it fell. And great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Kent. As I always introduce, I'm one of the pastors here. I don't typically call myself one of the ministers here, not just because I think uh, illy of that word. Actually, I think really highly of that word, and I just want to regularly point out that it's because our vision as a church is that we are all called to be ministers of the gospel to our, each other and the city. And so David and Kendall Webb, who are deacons of Global Missions, championing the work of Global Missions, are very much so ministers of the gospel here at this church. Hannah Edwards, who is taking uh, her uh, next, you know, 10 days uh, starting this week to go to Cuba, is a minister of the gospel in this church. So I'm one of the pastors here. This is one of the ways that uh, I live that out, but um, our vision and goal for you is that you would all live that out. So sidebar on that. Let's pray, and then we will dive into the stunning conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Though not our last week in the Sermon on the Mount, we do have a whole week next week just to talk about the crowd's reaction. So get amped for that. But uh, last week, uh, the words of Jesus in his sermon. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I, um, I ask you to create an atmosphere and a situation and a point of attentiveness so that you might be speaking clearly and might be heard clearly and not just heard clearly as is the point of your conclusion, but considered fully and then given the opportunity for us to do the words that we have heard. Not just today, but over the last several months, Lord, you have laid out a manifesto, manifesto of what it is to be human. And there's a whole lot of ability to receive that in sound teaching and do nothing about it. But just like we said a few weeks ago, all warnings are also invitations, particularly if they're given by good fathers. And I think you've shown yourself in my life, and I'm guessing in many of the lives of people here, uh, here, though some people might be waiting for full evidence of this, that you are a good father and that you are inviting us into our deeper joy, peace, hope, freedom, and life. But it's not enough to hear it. So I pray that we would not just be hearers, but be doers also. From that, we need a whole lot of help from your spirit. Um, I've, I've been here a lot. I've preached a lot of sermons. I've motivated a lot of people. It's not really actually um, transferred into actual transformation because that's something that can only be on you. And so, well, as I regularly remind myself, pressure's off on me. And we're excited to see what you're going to do with it. See how you will move hearts through your spirit to be shaped into the image of your design for humanity, not the deformed version that we've created for ourselves. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We intrinsically recognize the importance of action, particularly when compared to inaction or other forms of thinking or talking about action. Like the cliche, and there's several like it, of like you can walk the walk, but can you, or sorry, you can you talk the talk, but can you walk the walk or go into that category, right? Like there's songs, whether like you're like more like old school musicals, My Fair Lady, like don't just say it, but show me. Or if you are more like, I don't know, Elvis and like a little less 
conversation, a lot more action. It's the whole same idea that there is a huge Grand Canyon-sized gap between verbally assenting to something and actually being able or, or desirous or even not being able or desirous, but just simply doing it. I was a, a theater major, which when I say that, I know a lot of people are like, the pastor was a theater major. Yeah, sorry. Uh, and this is me now acting like a pastor, role of my life. And um, I was in this class. It was like our final to have a scene partner and do a final scene. And I remember our first rehearsal, me and my scene partner, we discussed that scene eloquent. We talked about our characters. We talked about a relationship. We talked about like our, the arc of that scene, the point of the entirety of the play that came out of, uh, just even the, the, where the characters were starting emotionally, where they moved emotionally. I mean, we, we brilliantly mapped that thing out. And then we go in the next day to our class and we talk about everything um, that we talked about. And our professor immediately met us with the edict of like, okay, from the next rehearsal, you can't talk at all. You can say the words on the script. You can act, but you cannot talk. Because we were falling into the trap that a lot, I mean, this was like, it was right on the tip of her tongue because this is apparently what a lot of people training for anything fall into, and you probably recognize it in your own discipline, that you can get into an easy habit of talking a lot about something, but the literal discipline we were trying to do was acting, and it is done through motion and commitment of the will to produce something other than just words. More than just understanding. I mean, everything back from probably the most influential ad campaign of the 90s was Nike. Three simple words. Just do it. All the same basic idea that you and I know. And this is the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus has been walking through an introduction in which he said, hey, blessed are all those who are not normally blessed because my kingdom is here. Blessed are you who think you're normally spiritually bankrupt because my kingdom is for you. Blessed are for those who mourn because in my kingdom, I'm going to make all sad things come untrue. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for this world to be made right, for those who are merciful, for those who are meek, for those who are pushed over and cast aside, because in my kingdom, you will find that those who find, find to feel like they are far from the folds of God are actually invited in in this moment. It's good news for you that I'm here. And then he goes on a main thesis hey, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, and then gives 14 teachings of what it looks like to be human in his kingdom. In light of everything we know about what it is to be in his kingdom, of what his kingdom's gonna bring, hey, here is an overarching way to reclaim your humanity in the light of my coming kingdom, which isn't coming in eternal coming, it's coming right now because I'm here, I'm the king, and it starts today. It gets bigger and better from this moment moving forward. And then he starts concluding, and he makes these three warnings slash invitations of, hey, there's a narrow road and a wide road. Lots of people are going to find the wide one. Few people are going to find the narrow one. It doesn't look like it's leading to life. It looks like you are intentionally laying down your life, and there you will find it. And there's false teachers that are going to lead you astray. And there's also people that are going to stand before me on the last day that say, hey, we did all these really powerful things. So clearly we had your power, we had your blessing, and, and I never knew them. And then in his last metaphor or parable, he doesn't even give a command. All the others have come with a command. Hey, enter into the narrow gate. Beware of false prophets. This one is simply him just describing something and inviting you to take it or leave it. And so it's the first verse of which we read. And if you have your Bibles open, if you look back at verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine. The last three chapters I've just preached eloquently. The greatest sermon in the history of the world. And does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. What's interesting there is 
Jesus doesn't say, hey, the difference between the wise man and what he's going to eventually lay out as the foolish man is not one who hears the words. It's not a comparison of people who are generally in the four walls of church or in the community that call themselves the church and those who are just like running in complete opposition, shaking their fist angrily at God. But it's rather two people who are here right now. Because the wise man and the foolish man and or woman hears the words. It's not a difference of just hearing the words. You being here, you having any time in church at all, right now in this moment, I mean, we read it. God has spoken. You have heard. The difference is more nuanced than such. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house, but, the, uh, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. I don't know how you would end a sermon. I don't know if you'd end it with like, you know, I don't know, some sort of acrostic. Remember, people, life, L is for love your enemy. And like, I don't know, something to like, you know, make it sticky in the memory or something. Or if it would be like more of like this invitational application. This is Jesus' MO. He says, how do I drop the mic in my sermon? You've all heard the words. It's up to you. This immediately makes us all very nervous. It makes me really nervous. <laughs> and uh, I think it's because three reasons primarily. I mean, there's probably more, just three that I was thinking on this week. Um, this is an impossible standard. I don't know if any of you have like actually done the work as we've been going through of like, okay, I'm going to press in against all the bitterness in my heart. I'm going to forgive everyone who has wronged me. I'm going to lay down the right to retaliate even against those who are my enemies, who would actively do me harm. I will bless and pray for and honestly, authentically, from the heart, love them. I'm going to lay down my ability to not just hold back the physical act of, of sexual impropriety, I will not think on others who have not been committed their entire life and I have not committed my entire life to in any way that is, is beyond the level of full purity. I am going to give up treasures, everything in life that I hold precious, just the natural things, money or experience or jobs or application, or just, you know, all the things that like, I find to be the most satisfying and securing things in my soul. I'm going to take my hands off them in order to give treasure away and to find deeper treasure in a kingdom. Again, not one that happens after we're all in the great by and by in the sky after we die, but one that comes now. It's impossible. If anyone has tried to do it on any level, you will find it to be, I mean, it's like, if this is the point, then I, if the point is to now do this, then you're just setting me up for the repeated task of like ramming into a closed door. Secondly, I, we have a really low information to action ratio, and that's not my term. That's a term by Neil Postman, who is uh, he's from NYU. He's a cultural commentator, particularly a critique of just technology. He's not like anti-technology. He's just as trying to just get his mind around how technology has shaped our world. And he writes a really um, prophetic book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And in the book, he coins the idea of a low information to action ratio. And what he means is this. He gets his thesis not from his own work, but from a, a man named Buckminster Fuller, which that's a name. And this person developed the idea of the information doubling curve. And the information doubling curve works like this. He said, okay, let's try to estimate from the time of the life of Jesus. He started with Jesus. How long it took for all information in the world, all 
you know, just produced culture and, and music and, and just ideas and written words, all information to double. How long did that take? And they've done it several times. They've all come up with, I guess, apparently close to the same number, 1,500 years, a millennia and a half. So it took a millennia and a half for all of culture and information to double from Jesus to 1,500 years later. Then from that point forward, it picked up dramatically. From that point, it doubled from 15 years after Jesus, or 1,500 years after Jesus, it doubled again in 250 years. Huge return on the investment of just like pressing into information at that point. And so you get 250 years. Then the next marker is actually one that'd be familiar to you and I, not by life experience, but we all remember at least on some of our no people who lived through World War II. So 1,500 years is the first one. 250 years later, at that point, it was 100 years. Every, after 250 years, it was 100 years. Every 100 years to World War II, information doubles. And it continues to do that after World War II, no longer at 100 years, but now at 25 years. Information, the entire world, all countries, all thinkers, 25 years. Then we get to the 90s. 12 to 13 months, information doubles. For every one of you who loved the 90s or were a child of the 90s, is because you were getting information and songs at every year doubled what it was before. Of course, this is doubling every time. It's, it's getting to a bigger portion that we then just double it again. And now we get to today, this morning. From all Google strategists or people, depending on who you listen to, it's a little bit of a range. It all functions about around this, pretty close all information now doubles every 12 hours. By the time you go to bed tonight, the entire information of the world will have doubled. It'll do it again tomorrow. It'll do it again the next day, and it will get faster. We are drowning in information. We're drowning in culture and media and all things and we don't know what to do with it. Because up to this point, I mean, Neil Postman makes the case. Like, uh, up to like, you know, uh, he actually doesn't point to the smartphone, Wi-Fi, internet, computer. He points it to the telegraph. Because he said all of a sudden, world could, uh, information could travel from one local area to another local area. It could travel across the world. And so all of a sudden, you were getting information. Before that, you just got information from your town. And like, if, you know, something happened, if you found out information, hey, somebody's house is on fire, or hey, somebody has had multiple children and needs help, hey, there's somebody uh, has robbed some store, you could have on some level the ability to act, and several people would. You had a direct information to action output. But now we get information from all over the world every single day. And there's multiple wars, and multiple mass killings, and multiple coups and turnovers of power and injustices. And most of that is just if we go to like our city and state and region, and then you back up like all across just the world. And now you've got like real serious, like, I don't know what to do with this information. Problem is, is I'm emotionally moved maybe on some level. Like I hear it. And then I like think like, I want to, I'm emotionally moved. I want to do something about it. By the time I put action to doing something about it, new information has come out that what I have set my mind to doing actually doesn't make the problem better. It makes it worse. So I get completely disillusioned. And we come into a culture where you get information all around the world all the time. Maybe you have emotional move, movement towards it. Maybe you have started to close off your mind and heart to it because you just don't know what to do with it anymore. And the information to action ratio is nothing. We create a culture where we become really good at hearing things and receiving stuff, but we don't do anything with it. And that's just kind of how we shape ourselves. And so you have not only that, not only do you have, man, like just it's an impossible task. We're just kind of used, we formed ourselves into people that hear a lot of information but don't do anything with it. It just seems like contrary to the gospel. Because the gospel if you don't know, or if you're here and just need to be reminded afresh, 
The gospel that we have all banked our lives on, those who call this church home, is the fact that we are never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be a good enough man. My wife, my, my family, we're never going to finally achieve good enough. That all of God's law was, yes, to show you how it was to be human in his world, but it's also as he showed up and told the the scribes and the Pharisees as God in the flesh. He said, hey, also this is to show you that your bent heart, the moment you decided to pick your kingdom over mine and your definition of good and evil versus mine, then all of your best tries, though you have a beautiful image of me that you can do beautiful things, it will all ultimately make you fall short. And that we have no banking on our own ability to be accepted before God, but we completely put everything into the fact that we've heard the news that Jesus says, hey, I come and I exchange my life for yours. Meaning, you should die and I die. And I should be honored as the son of God and you are honored as the son of God. And it's not just like, okay, that gets you back to zero and now you better figure it out. Like even the gospel moving forward is all the things, like I'm never going to have it down this side of eternity. Yes, I'm, I'm desperately trying to shape myself into the image of Jesus, but if it were about me like finally getting it even in like 50 years, there's never a point where God is like, now you finally are the point where I want to spend time with you. You finally pass the minimum threshold and can come into my kingdom. No, I am always a broken and sinful and humble work in progress. And if not for Jesus, if not for me resting on the blood and resume of my King Jesus, then I am damned. And if you're not here, if you're here, and if you're not here, if you're not here, well, you'll hear this on the podcast. Um, if you are here and you're not a Christian, or if you are a Christian or have come to church at least your whole life and somehow have missed that point, hear nothing else. Like that alone has shaped again, my life and the life of the members of this church in radical ways and is continuing to shape our lives in radical ways. But we do get to this point of the next natural question. Okay, if that's all true, I mean, I've told that message to enough people to know that the next natural question is always like, okay, if that's true, if it's all based on Jesus' resume, that not only, nothing that I've done in the past, I mean, there's nothing I can do to make God love me anymore. There's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore in Jesus. There's nothing you have done or ever will do that makes God love you any less because of Jesus. And if that's true, then why would I ever be motivated to be, to do all of this? And it reveals a really simple fault in our thinking that we live off of fear-based motivation. Fear-based motivation, it's what every marketer learns. I'm not just trying to demonize you marketers. I know it's actually a fine profession. It informs us of very many good products and services and all those things. But ultimately, if the theory of it is find the missing yearning in humanity and find how your product or service connects to those, and try to get people to act by letting them know if you miss this opportunity, if you miss this thing, you will forever miss out on that yearning. That's why the whole limited time thing, the McRib and pumpkin spice lattes are only big for a short amount of time because you need to have it now. This will fill your soul now. And the weird thing is, it kind of does. Like for the initial like five, 15 minutes, it kind of does. But fear is, it's really good for quick action it is horrible for long-term transformation. So all you have to do is keep reintroducing fear to get quick action, but you will never actually become a person who's transformed by fear. Other than fear-based motivation, the most ineffective way to motivate people in the short run, but actually transform them long run, is love-based motivation. The gospel, my friends, is love-based motivation. You don't come and do because otherwise I destroy you. I lay down my life. You come into my family. You are a son or daughter, and now you joyfully are formed into the image of Jesus. The way that you were always meant to be human, you stop dehumanizing yourself. The example I always point to are my wife and my wife's vows and my vows to her. We said explicitly in our vows, we can have a good marriage or a bad marriage. You can be faithful or unfaithful. And I am in this. 
Now, a way of interpreting those vows to each other is just like, hey, we both just totally took fear-based motivation off the table. I can go and be as unfaithful as I want, and she's not going anywhere. How awesome is that? But that totally misses the point of her saying to me, no, I love you if you're faithful or if you're not faithful. You can't push my love away if you fear that you have to become a better husband and just all of a sudden go and transform overnight to all these ways of now you really are performing as a good husband, but ultimately one day you break and realize I can't do it anymore. I can't operate out of fear anymore. And there's been no transformation to actually love me and be my husband, then it's worth nothing. But if I say, yeah, there's going to be a long process of you pressing into who you are and, and, and admitting your vulnerability and showing that you can't and asking for help and asking for forgiveness and forming yourself into the image of a husband of one who I am in complete union with, then I'm on board for that and I take all fear off the table. And so Jesus is going to lay out what they're trying to lay out, what Paul's trying to lay out in Ephesians. I mean, God reconciled you by his work, not yours, so that no one can boast. So now that you could walk in the good works that he set aside before you, because it's what your heart wants to do. It's what you were made to do. It's like James when he says, hey, faith without works is dead. Because it's not really a relationship to someone who says like, hey, I've totally freed you and given you all my love. And you say, oh, cool, awesome. I'm going to hang out in the chains and shackles. I don't want to have any relationship with you whatsoever. But rather, it's a love-based motivation that over time transforms my heart. Now, is it based on the fact that, oh, I can do all these things? No, I'll still be a mess when I go into the ground. But man, everything about how Jesus has laid this out says, I want to become more one with him and more like him every day I'm alive. And so that takes us back to the parable. Really familiar. If you grew up in church, you sang it with hand motions, like the Christian version of the Itsy Bitsy Spider. But it's a really chilling way to end a sermon. It talks about two builders. And two builders is a very interesting representation because it's talking about this idea that like, hey, like, it's all of your life. And to them, building their house was all of their life. Like, it's because you got land from your ancestors. Like, your ancestors settled land and just kept passing it down. You didn't buy a house or sell a house. You just continued to pass down and build on ancestral land. If, if multiple families lived, or multiple generations of a family lived together, if you found a wife, you built an addition onto the house, and you came and lived on that land. It was your whole life. Not only was your whole life like you lived and died multiple generations there, you did all of life. It wasn't just a place to like, oh, finally, Netflix o'clock. They didn't even have Netflix, by the way. And, and when they had that, that's a whole part of the doubling information problem. Either way, um, in the whole moment, that's not just to come and just like kick back and be with your family and relax. This is pre-industrial revolution. Your job functioned out of your house. So if you made stuff or grew stuff or sewed stuff together, you only left your house to trade and to barter with the things that you produced. I mean, if you were in agriculture, you'd get to like October because I've had times where I'm like, I, I've just not even left the house today. They hadn't left the house since March. Like think if this was our culture, if this is the way that we functioned, think of the money we would save on pants. Because, I, look, I'm not in any way saying that if I don't leave the house, I don't put on pants. But it does decrease the odds dramatically. And... And beyond that, I mean, it even plays true in our culture. Like, you are always on some level building your life around where you live. And so once you, like, get out and, like, you know, start getting a job, you, like, start getting enough to be like, okay, what rent can I afford? And, like, what amenities can I afford? And, and I probably should take a lesser rent so that I can build up enough for a down payment to own a house and get furniture to finally go into that house. And then once you get into a house, you think, like, oh, I made it into a house. And I thought I was done. I thought, I thought, like, well, there was one thing. I caught it, like, we moved in, and there were no curtains. And I'm like, we probably should put curtains up, you know, in case I don't want to wear pants. And, like, we put up the curtains, and I'm done. And then my wife, like, starts coming up with all these projects. Like, we now have a teal shiplap wall in our dining room. And we have light fixtures that are 
beautiful that the other ones that we have to light fixture shame. And we have a granite countertop that we worked in a backsplash and none of this was in the house and my wife like always asked me like hey like what do you want to do to the house and I said babe I was done at the curtains (laughs) we were good and none of our rooms had furniture but I was fine with that and like but we now are filling it with furniture and eventually maybe we'll like trade it up for another house it's your whole life husbands know this that's something for you today it's your whole life. And even if you're not in the house, every choice you make with your job, with what you take, what you don't take, is building. Every relationship you enter or don't enter, habit you take on or don't take on, hobby that you pick up or don't pick up, every single day of your life, you are building something. I would submit that even when you sleep and dream, whether you remember or not, you're building something. And so he lays out the sense of like, hey, no, this is something that is your whole life to think about. And it has some level of vulnerability. Because I love, I love that Jesus lays out the storms in this story coming for the wise man and the foolish man. It just feels really honest to me about Jesus' view of humanity because he is God and also human. And he doesn't, like so many people, try to like glitz up his opinion by saying, hey, wise people are going to get out of storms and foolish people are going to find themselves entering into them. This actually was an image straight out of his life and straight out of the lives of everyone there. Galilee is in the desert. It's really dry. But it's also, if you look at the topography of it, it's shaped by mountains and valleys. And mountains and valleys can often form this land formation, which is called a wadi, W-I-D-I. I Wikipedia'd it for about 20 minutes this week. I'm still not fully sure I'm up on why they were building in the wadis. But on some level, it probably was the case where if you look at Galilee, the whole place is just mountains and valleys. I mean, you're like filled with wadis all over the place. And... and The thing is is that they're dry riverbeds or dry points in a valley or dry points in the midst of a mountain. I mean, they can be anywhere, and you really can't tell where they are. They could lie dormant for generations until some rain comes, some thing down the mountain, and it can destroy anything that is not really rooted into the rock. And Jesus is laying out this sense of like, hey, this is about building your whole life and storms do come. If you do not build in a certain way, your house will look like Houston from last year. And not just your house, your entirety of your life. I just love the fact that Jesus is saying, there's a whole movement of theology right now that's really perverse and I believe on some level demonic that's trying to say that if you love Jesus enough, you don't go through storms. The last year of my life, I have learned to accept something I ran from my entire life. Life is hard. Life is really hard. Even when it's good, it's hard. Coming to accept that has brought me more peace, more joy, more understanding of reality, more ability to navigate reality. And the whole other side of, man, if you believe in Jesus enough, you're going to miss the storm, is a crisis of faith waiting to happen. Because no one misses storms. I'm not saying your whole life is going to be storms. I'm just saying that everyone hits multiple storms. You can go to another building on another side. You can go find it outside the church. You can find whole ideologies that will tell you differently. They're lying to you. And how you know it is because you will find your life in storms. And Jesus just doesn't really seem concerned about buttering up that fact. But he says, no, everyone goes through it. Life is hard. 
But I've even found that, man, life being hard is also one of the biggest graces of Jesus to me. Again, this is something I feel like I've learned more over the last year than ever before. I always felt like, man, the hard parts of life were like just the things that like you just like, they were part of the curse and, and they were just like parts you had to go through. And I guess on some level, there's something true to that. But I have also found that I have always made huge leaps of freedom and joy and peace by going through storms. I never find them any other way. I've always learned to take my hands off of things that were not Jesus, that were going to implode and were going to crash, and great would be their crash in the midst of storms. God loves me and you way too much to keep you from storms. And so, the thing about storms is that ultimately they reveal what you're building and what you're building upon. Like, it's like the most chilling part of the sermon because you can have two houses that generally look exactly like. You can have two lives. Again, this is not about like Christian versus pagan. This is two people in this room right now. I don't know the difference between you two. You don't know the difference if I'm on which side of I am on. Only you and your heart can ever know this. Only you and your heart can ever know this. And I got to admit, sometimes I really struggle to put where I am on the map. But it is graciously only for a time being because eventually a storm comes and it reveals exactly what's going on. We've all seen people break. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole, like, the, the foolish man's going to build his house on sand, the rain comes, the flood sweeps through, and it crashes, it falls. Jesus says, and great is its fall. The Greek word is megale. It's where we get our word mega. It is a mega crash. And we've all seen this. I mean, the entire last year has been people who were on the top but had not built their life on the things of Jesus, had not formed their humanity around what God said will make you more human. Maybe it was even ways that they got to the top. And then it revealed itself, and they are in jail or out of work, at least in their previous line, for life. I actually think this is a really honest time that a storm of their life that might reveal to them what they were building on, they might for the first time be able to learn, hey, there's something you build on that will not fail you. I think this is a time to pray for those people, not to judge them. But you've also seen like smaller ones. Like we've all seen like, I don't know, just family and friends who like, their life didn't explode. It just showed that over the course of years of just kind of being culturally at church and kind of generally giving head nods to Jesus, ultimately formed them in something that was nothing like the image of Jesus. And it, where we see this the most is when people hit a certain age. There just comes a certain age where whatever, I mean, we joke about it. I'm like, man, I can't wait to get to the age where I can just say whatever the heck I want and people can't say anything because they're like, well, he's old. And like, they, you say things, but like, it's funny in some light, but in another light, it reveals a really bitter heart. Really angry disillusioned people. And what's not fun, funny is that is their life. And there's no getting out of it anymore. There's no putting it up. The funny thing is, it actually looks exactly like our lives. We just have a lot more energy to keep it down under the surface. I had a, I have a great aunt. And uh, she, she's broken in the most beautiful way. We called her, uh, my wife and I, when we were raising support for college ministry. And she said, I really, I really love your vision. I really want to support you. But I can't because my power attorney has taken away my ability to support missionaries because I supported six last month. <laughs> and he fears that I'm going to outspend everything I have towards just supporting different missions that I find compelling. She also was crazy forgetful. It probably was good. But she was so joyful. I, I've 
like really connected with this woman for the first time when I went to her house in the Chicago area when I was in middle school. Or no, it wasn't, it was in high school. But I remember going and like, all we do is stay the night there. We get up and have breakfast. She serves us breakfast. And then she just wants to talk about Jesus and the fact that in him we have full acceptance with the Father. I mean, it was just what came out of her. Like you sit down for five minutes and you get toast and gospel. And she was the most joyful woman I've ever seen, particularly when her mind really went. I mean, she was laughing. She was joyful. She was giving her money away and trying to convince herself, but she couldn't remember to talk to her power of attorney to give her power back. And again, the law would never have given it back to her. She probably shouldn't have had it. It was a really compelling way to live. And I see a lot of people that have not formed themselves that way. Now, there's a ton of nuance. There's a lot of people that are forming themselves into the image of Jesus and man, just something happens, something goes. And and there's a lot of people that are getting, like, we're all going to be works in progress when that time comes for us. And so there's just going to be all stuff that just like comes bubbling up. And so I'm not saying like if they're angry and bitter, they're not in heaven. But I am saying that every single thing you do right now is shaping you into a human or into a non-human. And what we call being human is actually dehumanizing ourselves. I mean, read the teachings. We were meant to forgive people. We weren't forget to hold, to choose, I get to pick who gets forgiven or not. We were meant to let go of grudges and to love our enemies, even if it costs us mightily, even if it costs us everything. We're meant to not like grubbily hold on to everything that we feel like is going to keep our kingdom at bay, but meant to let go and give greatly into the lives of women and men as we help build this kingdom. We're meant to let go of the captivity of lust and actually find true intimacy in community with friends, with a spouse, with, with family, with the family of God, with God himself. It's a really compelling way to be human. And every single day you're shaping yourself in it or not. Ultimately, I mean, we just, we overvalue teaching. Hear me right on that. I love teaching. I spend all of my Fridays and half of my Sundays committed to teaching every single week. And I probably think about it almost all, it's always the background program in my mind. I love teaching. It's not enough. So many of us are reading books and podcasting our ways into really well theologically minded people that have no practice whatsoever. Teaching is a great beginning. Jesus was a teacher. Jesus taught. And then he ends this sermon with saying, now practice. I mean, the whole sermon is couched in this idea of those who practice, hey, this, you're the salt of the earth, you're the, you're the light of the world, and those who do these things will bring glory to the Father in heaven. Those who do these things, the Greek word is poieo. It is to give of myself, to obey, to act, to do. It's 22 times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, 10 times in the conclusion alone. It just shows up as those who poieo bear good fruit or bear bad fruit or those who poieo do the will of my Father in heaven. And here, the wise man who hears my words in poieo, who does, obeys them, shapes himself, shapes herself into the image of humanity one day at a time. So many people treat our faith like an ideology. If I can just learn enough of it, if I can just get enough information and maybe occasionally get a little inspiration, and then I just sweat it out with perspiration. The problem is, is that fails within a week, maybe a month. You have never had that formula lead to long-lasting change in your life, and you know that you've tried it about a billion times at this point. But ultimately, he's saying, no, it's a life of practice. Nobody just says, hey, you shouldn't worry. Huh. Okay. And goes on and does it. Like, there is never a moment. I don't care how compelling that sermon is. If you are not daily shaping yourself with truths and with prayer and with community and with fasting and and with giving away your money when it feels like that makes you more anxious, but just being like, I am going to press into the words of Jesus, believing he knows more of what it means to be human than I do. 
then I actually, over not a day or a week or a month or a year, but a decade, I talked with someone who after the anger sermon said, I'm so trying to forgive this person. And I just said, like, you should start praying and plan on praying for a decade before you feel any movement at all. This is not a year game. It's decades and scores and half and full centuries. This isn't an ideology. It's better compared to a sport where you don't wake up and just start doing the, uh, the pinnacle of your sport. You start in very small, skill-based, just very simple activity. And even the people that are in the NBA finals right now show up at the court every single day to do the same thing you do in youth basketball at six because they're shaping themselves over time and years into someone who is the image of the perfect basketball player in their minds. And Jesus says, this is a lifetime of practice. It's also a lifetime of community. You will not do this on your own. People overvalue um, teaching. They also overvalue the Sunday gathering. And I'm all in on this. That, like, a lot of people will be like, well, I missed the Sunday gathering. I actually missed it a lot. I just grabbed the podcast. Okay, well, you overvalue teaching because that's only going to give you information. There's a thing to coming here and being in the community of people. But you can't just come on Sundays. It's not like I did Sunday, I did MC. It is how are you shaping yourself on Monday and Tuesday? And how do you switch it up because it didn't fully work. And so now I'm shaping myself on Wednesday. I'm not just continuing to read and read and read, though I need to be shaped by these words. And not as just I know everything that's in here, but I'm having these things shape me and memorize and move grooves and valleys into my soul. But then over time, I mean, I talked with guys in my discipleship group. They're like, man, I'm just reading and I just feel so dry right now. And, and I'm realizing too, yeah, I get there when I have reading, but I don't have community and I don't have walking in nature to remind myself who God is. And I don't have fasting and I, I don't have prayer. And, I, and I, I don't have all of the things that I've learned have slowly shaped me. I mean, as I say over time, sometimes I just need to beat out songs on the piano that remind me truth. Sometimes they have nothing to do with God. They just are things that are true that ultimately remind me about God. And so it's, it's community. You're just not going to do this on your own. We're radically moving into isolation as a culture in a really scary way. You are a product of your culture. You are becoming isolated. Our friendships are less deep. Our relationships are less deep. You need a whole group of people that someday you're strong, some days they're strong. Someday you confess verbally. I'd say in some little way every day I verbally want to confess. Just get it out. Sometimes I just need to be in a room of people that remind me I'm not crazy. <laughs> that other people are banking their entire life on this too. I need people to bear my burdens. I need to bear other people's burdens. I won't look like Jesus if I fail to do either. And it ultimately takes the Holy Spirit. Jesus says in the sermon, the last of his teachings before he hits the conclusion, you need to ask and seek and knock because this is an impossible standard. You can't do this. Nobody can do this. Nobody can love their enemies. Not repeatedly, not over the course of time, not for a lifetime, not authentically from the heart. Nobody can cure themselves of all the ways we've misshapen ourselves. You have to have the Holy Spirit. Jesus assumes the Holy Spirit. And it's a level of like, I get up every day and I'm asking and I'm seeking and I'm knocking and I'm begging afresh for this day, for this moment, for my day. Hey, there's my schedule. Here's what I need the Holy Spirit to do in me today. I ask regularly for me to love my wife and love my sons because I won't do it on my own. I need just a regular asking and saying, I cannot do this outside of the power that raised Jesus from the dead working in me to complete the act of sanctification. We totally misunderstand the cross. Jesus died for my sins. Awesome. He also rose again to empower me with the same spirit that raised him from dead from crucifixion, buried three days, and then up again. And it doesn't show up this week. It doesn't, I mean, it does, but I don't feel it. I don't feel it out till years and decades and scores of faithfully moving in the same direction. 
a long obedience in the same direction, my brothers and sisters, is a better way to describe the Christian faith than spurts of perspiration to change. And so, one way we tangibly do this every week is through communion. This, don't misunderstand it. This isn't just like, hey, I need to remember that Jesus died for my sin. Amen. That is what it is. It's not less than that. It's I, me regularly reminding myself of Jesus dying for my sin and him being my righteousness. But it's also the body broken for me, the blood shed for me, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, this is for all of us who believe this, us being connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The first thing you need to do today, if you're going to apply this sermon, is not to make a plan, though you do need to make a plan. The first thing you need to do is not to join an MC or get in a discipleship group or have a conversation saying we need to go deeper, though you do need to do this. The first thing you need to do this week is to cry out for the Holy Spirit, and it starts to the act of communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, This is just bread and juice. But for the Christian, it is the body and blood of Jesus connected through the Holy Spirit to empower us. I'm not going to walk out of here and be like, man, I took communion. (laughs) I've got the lucky gene. But it's a way of asking for God's presence to be in me as I shape myself to the rest of the day. And tomorrow as I beg for his presence again. And Tuesday when my MC gets together and we talk about shaping ourselves. And Wednesday when I'm talking with people that are intentionally in my life and as I'm making these life-shaping practices. You choose. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, I... I pray for your spirit to be here right now in this room. I pray for you to give me and my brothers and sisters here a really compelling vision of what you're leading us to, but not just one that will inform and inspire and lead us to trying really hard for a little bit, but one that will say, okay, what do I do about as I go home today? What do I do about tomorrow? How do I get into a community of people that are going to hold me to that when I don't feel like doing it tomorrow? How do I get into a community that reminds me of ultimately I can get nowhere without the presence of the Holy Spirit? And so, Lord, fill us with your Spirit as you've been doing so for millennia now. As long as information has been doubling and doubling and doubling again, you've been filling people with your Spirit through, through bread and a cup that connect us in a spiritual way to your death and your resurrection, the same power that rose you from the dead that is rising us from the dead and transforming us to be in the image of Jesus. Lord, do that again afresh today. We need your spirit. We need it for today and we need it moving forward. In Jesus' name, amen.